welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Um, today, answering the bloody stupid question. Question. It's not going to start. Today, question. answering the bloody stupid question: Could phonemography increase the happiness quotient in "Say Yes to the Dress"? So, answering that question today, we have me. Hello, I am Mike. Mike Collins, a learning designer, man with microphones, and imposter syndrome incarnate. And I am joined as ever by my capable co-host. I'm Mark Childs. Uh, my snappy tagline is still a guy with a PhD in education. I need to work on that, I think. But anyway, yes, that's me. And we are joined by, and in fact, bringing and helping us answer this question, we have... Sheila Weber. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in the Information School at the University of Sheffield. My background is I started off in libraries, the British Library, the National Library, and that's a long time ago that I've been an academic for a while. And my core interests are information literacy and information behaviour with a kind of like side of pedagogic theory. And in the, uh, sort of the preamble to this recording, uh, saying how Mark and Sheila sort of don't normally see each other on webcam because they usually see each other in a lower poly environment of second life. Yep. In fact, Sheila was my... Uh, was my um, external examiner for my Viva mm. in Second Life. Yes, because my PhD <laughs> in Second Life. Uh, I do not have a PhD myself, but I have supervised PhDs and examined PhDs. So that's my imposter mm. syndrome and... aspect. <laughs> <laughs> but, no sh- uh, but no Second Life inside out. So, yeah, runs the Virtual World's Education Roundtable that's every Thursday true. night. That should have been in your tagline. That's awesome. Island. Yes. <laughs> and I have blue hair. In Second Life, I've always had blue hair. An amazing line in dresses, uh, I have yes. to say. Which is going to be a link in to say yes to the dress, I think. Oh, ah, of course. Okay. Ah. Right, it's all falling Do you design dresses in Second Life then? No, no, I just buy them with real money. <laughs> you know, I will never understand Second Life, ever. We need to do a session on that then. I will explain it to yeah, you. I'll ignore the fact that I bought hundreds of League of Legends skins over the years and just, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Imagine buying them. Anyway, yes, sorry. Let's get into it then, the first part of our show where we break down the question. Part one, the question. Could phenomenography, phenomeno, <clears throat> could phenomenography, oh my God. Yeah. Could phenomenography. Oh my God, that's the, in, in, that's the fifth time you've tried to say that and that was the first time you got it right. Really? Oh no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why didn't anybody stop me? Well, you know, it's quite, it, phenomenography you were saying. Did I? Phenomenography, oh. yeah, yeah. It's some Flipping matter. It's blinkering. fine, it's fine. You got it there. But you know, I spent half the morning just muttering to the phenomena. Do, 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 do. Like, that's, that's possibly the problem. The moment when I knew I was finally a researcher was when I could say phenomenography without having to think about it. Ah, that's so good. It's so oh, natural. Yeah. I, what I'll do is I'll stitch in in the edit. Every time I say phenomenography, I'll stitch in Sheila saying it so it sounds, I mean, it won't quite be smooth, but you'll get it. So the question, uh, could phenomenography increase the happiness quotient in, say, yes, the dress? There are two components to this. <laughs> Phenomenon- oh, the, the bit begins with PH and ends with ography and say yes to the dress. Uh, should we talk about say yes to the dress first? Yes. So um, I should perhaps start by saying I like looking at pictures of clothes. Um, this is a horribly stereotyped, gendered kind of thing, but I look like looking at catalogues of clothes that I might buy from. I like looking at pictures of virtual clothes I might wear in, in Second Life in the 3D virtual world. Um, and as a kind of side thing to that, one of my vices is an addiction to say yes to the dress, where <laughs> clothes uh, in the form of wedding dresses are just paraded throughout the show. It's all about the wedding dresses. So it, it drew me in because I like looking at clothes. Um, and then I suppose... There's a certain structure to the drama which attracts me. 
So shall I explain the format of Say Yes? Yeah, do, do. Because, I mean, it's... uh, Are we talking about the US version? uh, Yes, it started with the version, which I think is in New York, at the Kleinfeld Bridal um, Suite. And I think it's got into about Series 20, Series 21. Um, And it has... um, In each episode, um, there are about three or four brides. And so it starts with the bride coming in with her entourage and um, the entourage might consist of her mother, her mother-in-law, her sister, her sister's friends, her stepsister, her stepmother, um, her aunt, her grandmother, um, sometimes her father, occasionally the fiancé who's not really supposed to be there but there might be special (laughs) circumstances where they are there and usually there's about eight of them Um, and so they're all introduced and the bride is asked about her fiancé and how wonderful he is and where they're going to have the wedding and then she's asked about the price point, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's the lowest price point is about one and a half thousand dollars. And you can see the, the wedding consultants kind of rolling their eyes a bit. Are they actually going to be able to find a dress that, you know, for that low price? Um, and then they're asked whether they have ideas about the dress. And mostly they have. It might be it's usually to do with the shape and how much it's going to reveal and whether it's got things like lace on it. Sometimes I might refer to their grandmother or their mother, and sometimes they bring a little photo that kind of, this is my dream dress. Um, and then they ask the entourage, and that's where the kind of conflict starts, because at that point, it emerges that some people in the entourage um, have completely different ideas. So the, the bride might say, I want something sexy and curvy that shows how desirable I am tonight, my future husband, and he'll enjoy it. And then the mother says, I want something that covers everything up, because, you know, this is a a formal wedding and her grandmother will be there or we can't, uh, or I've always, uh, and then perhaps if it's a father, I've always dreamed to see her going down the aisle in a princess ball gown like in <laughs> Disney. Um, and so that's that's all set up. And, so, and then they try on different dresses, usually at least three. And then there's the, the medium drama when, uh, kind of at the middle of the show where everyone's disagreeing. So the bride might say, I love this, I love this. And then she comes in and everyone says, oh, they pull faces and then they say, you look like a meringue or you look like you're in your grandmother's curtain. Um, and then she kind of stunned like weep and then the entourage gets told off a bit for being her unhappy. Um, but there's a toing and throwing, some things that she doesn't like and the entourage will just love it and there'll be disagreement among the entourage and kind of bitterness and family histories emerge. But then for most of the brides, eventually there'll come a moment where um, they say, oh, I feel like a bride. And then they say, can you see yourself going down the aisle in this dress? And they say, yes, I can. And then they say, and what are you saying now? Are you saying yes to the dress? And then they say, yes, I'm saying yes to the dress. And then oh. everyone hugs <laughs> and cries. And occasionally they don't say yes to any dresses and kind of they, they stump out looking rather rather depressed. Um, but mostly it's kind of like happy happy ending. They've got the dress. They're going to spend thousands, not millions of dollars, thousands of dollars on this thing, uh, which they'll just wear once and then kind of keep somewhere. I mean, it's watching it as as a gentleman. It's it's a it's a real eye opener into a whole world totally beyond <laughs> my ken. I mean, Mark, did you did you get a chance to watch any? Oh, I I didn't know I was supposed to. <laughs> Mark, I am outraged. I am absolutely outraged. I have actually been shopping with the daughter of a friend to get a wedding dress so I can. Um, so I've seen that side of things. There was there was the the bride to be, her mum, and her mum's two friends, and I was one of the friends. And so I have seen like these enormous warehouses, and you, and just sort of dress after dress after dress. But there is something 
kind of, I don't know, um, what's the word? Uh, transitional is not the right word. Transformative. Uh. When that dress appears. And it's obviously the right dress. And it is quite, it was a very emotional moment when I saw Sarah in this wedding dress. And it was like, oh, that's my little girl. Because I did look after her a lot when she was little. And it was like, um, yeah, so I, I have seen that side of things. I've, I think I've seen one episode of, of the TV show um, and kind of, yeah, I, so I could see what was the format and how the format worked. And I'm sure there's a lot of it is about being selective about what appears uh. in front of the camera and in the edit to make a narrative because I'm sure a lot of these shows work that way. But um, as an insight into that world, it's quite interesting. I don't know. I feel like it's... Because I know there's like a UK version and there's um, yes, but so I, I've watched some. I watched a lot of best ofs um, of the various versions around the world, and you can't really beat the US version because there's something about Americans on reality TV where yes. they they turn they turn everything up to like 120. It's all kind of everything's <laughs> full on. So it's not just people going, oh, I, you know, I quite like this dress, it's quite a nice dress. It's like, oh my god, I cannot see you in that dress. You look, and it's, it's, it was, <laughs> yes. it was absolutely incredible. I was a couple of real mumzillas uh, in there who were just like, you are not wearing that dress. And I just, um, <laughs> this, this one lady who looked really cool had some amazing tattoos, and her mum wanted, and she wanted a black dress, and her mum was like, no, you're getting a white dress. It's gonna have sleeves. So nobody sees your tattoos. I see, I seen that one. I've seen that one. Oh my god, I was like, I was on the edge of my seat, and I was also utterly outraged. And I, I hate telling you like that, but I couldn't tear myself away because I was just like, <laughs> and, and then she started like emotionally blackmailing her, like, what about when I die? You'll think about this then. And it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, how this escalated. Just a frock love. Oh my god! But then I, I, you see, this is what I'm saying about the male perspective because this is—I I don't get the emotional um, weight of it. But uh, I, to my best of my knowledge, it's the only time my wife and her mum have ever had a proper falling out was when it came to picking um, her wedding dress. And that Laura found one that she liked, just bought it, just popped off one day, came back with a dress, and then her mum found out that she'd been wedding dress shopping without her and hit the ceiling. Oh my god! And then there was a—it was oh, it was weeks. It was weeks, and then in the end, they bought a dress together, and everything was resolved. But it was the only time they've ever fallen out. Oh. All the time I've known both of them, it was—it um, was amazing. But yeah, so not a show I'd normally watch, but I must admit it was so fascinating. Laura's research. got two wedding dresses then. So Laura's got two wedding dresses. Yeah, then. she has. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Interesting. There's a quotation which I meant to write down, but I don't think I have from uh, Laurie, who's the um, key person in the Atlanta version of "Say Yes to the Dress," where she said that uh, a wedding dress is not just a piece of satin, it's uh, your future and your dreams. So, and obviously she believed that. I mean, I think some of these weddings themselves <laughs> perhaps don't, but I think some of them are really bought into the idea of the mm. wedding dress is what you've been waiting for your whole life. Oh, yeah. um, it's the most important thing you'll ever buy. Um, and also it has your whole life wrapped up in it. So it's so important to make the right choice. Wow. Conscious, we should probably move on to phenomen. Oh God, phenomenography, phenomenography, <laughs> phenomenon. Oh, <laughs> Sheila, can you say it, please? Phenomenography. Thank you. Conscious, we should probably move on to phenomenography and happiness quotients. So, phenomenography. I did a, like. A, I had no idea what it was, and as you can tell, I couldn't say it either. So, I did a little bit of a sniff around, and it is apparently the empirical study of the different ways in which people think of the world. So how they experience uh, and understand the different, well, how they understand and kind of process the different phenomena that they experience. And then I just wrote the words to phenomena over and over on my notes. Um, 
So can you can you kind of expand on that a little bit and possibly I correct me if I've got that horribly wrong? No, no, that's that's you've got the essence of it there. Um, with phenomenography, which is a research approach, so it affects the whole kind of thinking about what is the research question, how are you going to collect the data, how are you going to analyze the data, and in the case of phenomenography, even how are you going to present your findings? It's a research approach, and there's only really one kind of research question that it can be used with which is what are the variations, the qualitative variations in conceptions or experiences of a phenomenon. So you're identifying a particular population and then you're identifying your phenomenon. So the phenomenon can be something abstract. So uh, I and some colleagues did a research study into information literacy, people's conceptions of information literacy in particular populations. And some of my PhD students have done that as well. But it's used across the whole disciplines. You've got people in chemistry. It's used quite a lot in health to explore, for example, the phenomenon of being in the operating theatre and the variations in people's experience of that, say, the different types of doctor and nurse actually in the operating theatre, or patients' conceptions of pain or of a particular disease. It could be conceptions of a more tangible object, but obviously it's got to be worth you actually investigating. You have, there's got to be a reason why you want to know why people experience this thing or conceive this thing differently. So if you're not actually investigating the qualitative differences in how people conceive of um, or experience something, then it's not phenomenography. So that's that's how it's different, for example, from phenomenology, uh-huh. which because um, phenomenology is investigating a life world and so it usually focuses in, again, obviously on a specific population, but it's looking at them and their life world. It's not focusing, so obviously it may have various different kind of foci for the investigation, but it's not looking at one phenomenon and just kind of trying to find out how people think about that phenomenon, which is what you're doing in phenomenography. It's trying to get a picture of the people within their life world and their, um, in their own body and in relation to others. Uh, a kind of, in the, of the world at large. Okay, this explains so, a lot. <clears throat> let me, well, yes, so Sheila, can I, because I was familiar with phenomenology oh. and to an extent which when Sheila said phenomenography, I just went straight from a phenomenology. So if I bounce back what you just said oh. there, because I'd not really, again, I hadn't read up on what phenomenography oh, was. Mark. <laughs> um, I've been so slack. Um, so say if I was doing a phenomenological, phenomen, <laughs> you've got me now, phenomenological research into second life which is what i did phenomenological that is on what it means about what it tells us about existence what it tells us about the nature of existence and about how experience of who we are and our place in the world is changed by being in a virtual world i think so but a phenomenographer oh god damn it phenomenographical uh, perspective would be to look at a certain population a certain group and see how that they describe the phenomenon of experiencing second life. So it might be a series of builders and makers. It might be a series of gamers. And then looking at that from that perspective and trying to draw parallels between their experience of what that means to them within that environment. Is that correct? Have I got that right? Yes. Yeah, so I think more or less. Okay. So I'll take that. Yes. So <laughs> you might say, okay, I'm going to look at the qualitatively different ways in which people experience or conceive of um, being in second life. Um, And then you'd need to decide, 
am I going to have a very varied sample of people? So you might no. choose to make it a bit more homogenous or you might try and get as varied a sample as possible. So you might say, okay, I'm going to have some people who are new to Second Life because, in fact, what you are often aiming for is maximum variation. So you can actually tease out all variations. So you might say, I'm going to have some people who've been it for 10 years. I'm going to have some people who've only been it for two weeks. I'm going to have some people who just um, go and have sex on the mature island. I'm going to have some people who are educators. Um, I'm going to have some people who are kind of steampunk, some people who are really into fashion. So you might decide to vary your sample a lot. And when you do the analysis, you're not really looking, you're not looking at their context. You're normally doing interviews. And in the interviews, you're always circling around the one question, which is how do you, say, experience being in second life? How do you experience second life? You'd probably be in, you could have second life as the phenomenon, or it might be being in, in an avatar, or you might actually have how do you conceive of your avatar or experience your avatar? Those would be two different questions, I think. But say it's second life, you'd be always circling around this question of how do you experience second life? And obviously you'd be, there'd be some questions you'd have, you would use to tease that out, but it's always centering around that question. So it's like there's really just one interview question, but you have to tease it out a bit so that you can get at it from different angles and deepen their reflection. Because often it's something that people haven't explicitly thought about before. And so you have to get them going. And So that's one of the characteristics of an onographic interview. It should be very probing and in-depth and ideally establish some good trust between the interviewer and the interviewee so they're, they're willing to open up and actually reflect. And it can be a learning experience on some interviewees explicitly talk about how, how they've learned more about the phenomenon through going through the interview. Then you all kind of chuck all the interviews into a pot and you look at them all together. I mean, obviously you're looking, you do look at one interview at a time, but you, you don't, you're not interested in the individual, you're interested in looking at the whole because right. people might okay. and often do have more than one experience. It might depend on the context that uh. sometimes they do have different experiences. So, for example, in there's been a, loads of research on about conceptions of learning, conceptions of teaching, and in kind of key studies of conceptions of teaching and approaches to teaching, there's a sort of hierarchy where you get one conception where actually they can conceive of teaching in different ways and they're probably adapting it to different circumstances. So sometimes they might actually take a more transmissive approach, but it's part of their repertoire, whereas you might uh, other people who never think of doing teaching except in a very transmissive kind of way. And then from the interviews, you're then trying to identify categories, so particular, a, n a number of different qualitative different ways in which people are experiencing these things. Um, and you also, um, and there are, there's kind of obviously discussion around the exact ways in which you do the analysis. And there's a real, one of the reasons why I like phenomenography, um, it's kind of closest to my heart because it's, it is the research approach where I felt I've become a researcher through doing a project about it. But also it's got a very unusual community in that it's cross-disciplinary and there is actually a conference that happens every couple of years where the people who founded phenomenography come along and PhD students come along, people from all sorts of different disciplines come along and talk about phenomena, phenomenography and ah! research. <laughs> I know that. Uh, yeah, it's a bleep there. So, I've, I've, so, okay, so I think I've got clear. So phenomenography really, and this is a key thing that I missed the first time around, was that it's a, 
it's basically a group of research approaches that include, a, uh, and, and it's a term for a lot of research approaches around a different phenomenon, whereas phenomenology can be, it's about your own personal experience or it's about um, a philosophical approach or whatever. It doesn't necessarily have that research connotation, whereas phenomenography is a word to describe a research position and a research process looking around phenomena. Is that... And and it's associated with a, a non-dualist um, research philosophy, that meaning that there is not a separation between the world and the person. Because what you're trying to do in phenomenology, phenomenography is trying to get inside the person's head to understand how they're understanding it. So you're seeing it at kind from of behind their hand, eyes, yeah. from behind their eyes. Um, but you don't, see uh -huh. the, the, and they are part of the world. So they're not seen as being distinct from the world. They are part of the world and you're investigating the world through their eyes. Oh, that's so interesting. You see, this is because I've been looking at activity theory recently and there's sort of subject and object as kind of different, you know, different components. Uh, and I suppose, yeah, this is, oh, hmm, okay. Yeah. Oh man, there's a lot of unpack yes. here. Okay. I think, I think a good way to maybe understand this better, it would be to see it in action in some sort of mini case study applied -y kind of context by answering a question about say yes to the dress. Mark, you don't know. Yes. Mark, you don't know very certain, but I'm not sure if that's because you're quietly dying in front of us on the webcam. Oh, it's only because I'm quietly dying. Yes. No, that sounds like a really good idea. Sorry, Mark, Mark has actually just like propped himself up with a pillow and is sort of gradually <laughs> just desiccating in Hopefully. front of us. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> okay, well, okay, let's let's take it into. Oh, actually, no, one more thing. Actually, very quickly, happiness quotient. I I don't think I've come across the term before. I I would assume it's kind of Ronsil in that it's the quotient of happiness. Uh, yeah, I I think it was just two words I happened to pick. <laughs> oh, good. I wasn't sure if it was, this was a specific thing. <laughs> no, no. Um, it probably is. I'm sure it, for someone it probably is. But I I, I was just meaning that say yes to the dress, there'll be happier people. People will go out, more people will go out the door happy. Okay. Um, I don't know what quotient Yeah, I mean, there is, a, there is an actual specific happiness quotient thing. While I was at Warwick, uh, there was a guy that was publishing some stuff on that. And again, I could try and track that down, stick in the show notes. But it's basically about trying to, uh, well, coming up with metrics to measure quality of life. So it's like, so it's, it might be things like, you know, whether you've got your basic needs met and whether or not you're happy and all those sorts of things and which things make you happy and which things don't. I'm actually trying to come up with a different sort of metric. You could then measure changes in happiness over time of a population or whatever, or you could look at different sorts of populations across the world. And I try and identify which is the happiest, happiest country in the world and things like that. So, and therefore, if you're looking at things like economic factors and social factors and whatever, you can then start linking happiness as an idea, as a number with happy with social class or equality or whatever. So, so this is where people come up with things like Norway is a happier country uh, than the UK because although people on average don't have more money, they the money is more equally distributed. So, and that's what has led to people being happier is that you don't have these normal enormous financial class divides and those sorts of things. So that's, that's where happiness quotients come in as an actual measure. Again, it's like you're always just using, you know, it's like, how do you come up with a metric? And as soon as you start measuring things, I think Rebecca said before now, the, the stuff that really matters, you can't measure. This is a, this is some sort of way of coming up with you know, a way of imagine measuring. Imagine a world run are. by happiness accountants. <laughs> well, there wasn't, there a, wasn't there a Doctor Who episode about that? A happiness patrol. 
It was the one the Sylvester McCoy episode with the Bertie Bassett character. Uh, yeah, that one might have passed me by, old chap. Might be, uh, <laughs> might be before you, might be a might few decades before, before time, I before, before my time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but it, you, it usually is a sign of a dystopia where ev- when everyone is expected yeah. to be happy all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's coming up with a good measure, really, because obviously it's it's there's a difference yeah. between all those sorts of things. Anyway, uh, and there a we positive go. move in the UK, making sure that we're moving very far away from dystopia and that nobody will be happy any of the time. Um, <laughs> current events. With uh, mm-hmm. anyway, sorry, I won't get too cross about that. Anyway, cool. Okay, well, uh, I know what happiest quotient is now. Measurably happy. Job done. Um, so uh, let's move on to the second part of our question, where we answer: Could phenomenog phenomenography could phenomenography increase the happiness quotient in say yes to the dress part two the answer okay sheila okay so i think the way to do this would be to treat say yes to the dress each episode well each bride would be a research project and to begin with it would have to they'd have to start from scratch with every bride as i'll explain i think you could accumulate this so already they do ask some usually quite superficial questions of the bride and the entourage about what they're looking for in the dress but in the new upgraded phenomenographic say yes to the dress they would have in-depth interviews with multimodal interviews with each bride and each member of the entourage in which they'll be exploring what is your the, the main question would be what is your conception of a wedding dress and that would be the central question they'd be revolving around. And so they um, might be asking some prompt questions about um, what's the loveliest dress, you know, what's your the loveliest dress you've ever seen and what does the wedding dress mean to you and what did your wedding dress mean to you if that's appropriate. They might be asked to bring along um, videos or pictures of wedding dresses that they really like that seem to them be the essence of a wedding dress or they might have samples of fabric that people could kind of put together and say this is these, these are the fabrics I'd love in my wedding dress and so all of that would be gathered as data and transcribed and so forth um, and analyzed and when they've got the whole of the entourage and the bride all of the data they would then pool all of that data and from it they would identify the conceptions varying conceptions that this group of people had of what the wedding dress was about and it might be that because the bride particularly, usually seems particularly important, they might want to individually um, identify her conception of, of a wedding dress. But I think it might be okay just to have the categories. And then these would need to be fed back to to the group so that they could then confront the categories of what a wedding dress might be. A year or so ago, I did actually do some examples which are so these examples are not based on the kind of rigorous qualitative research methods that I've just outlined. They're from observation, um, my own observation and reflection on rather too many episodes of Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> so um, if you were looking at the bridal one, you might have the, you might, it might emerge that the categories were, for example, sexy bride. Um, uh, where the the bride is showing off the figure, there are transparent panels. It's low cut. It's it's the the dress is aiming to show off the bride as a sexy person. Category two might be princess bride. Um, so it's big skirt, <laughs> lace, sweetheart neck. Um, kind of a certain amount of kind of virgin pureness emerging through the dress. 
Category three might be traditional bride, where it's not too clean, it's a short train, it's not kind of outlandish. Um, another category that they might identify is the bride that they're actually looking at, that, that the, the conceptual wedding dress is, is uh, the one that suits the bride, the actual person. Uh, it happens surprisingly infrequently that that's actually the conception that um, the entourage seem to come along with. Sometimes they say, oh, it's got to be just like, say she's called Naomi, it's, it's, it's got to be um, just Naomi. Um, and then and, and they actually dismiss dresses by saying, oh, it's not Naomi at all. In fact, I think then most usually they've got their own conception of who Naomi is um, rather than the conception of, of what the bride thinks she is. And so there I might propose there are dimensions of variation. So there's things that um, both separate and join these categories. So one dimension of variation might be the bride's perceived character. So their perception of what the bride's character is, who they think she is, what they think she's about, is important in all of these categories, but it's qualitatively different in each one. So in category one, the sexy bride, it might be that their conception of the bride is she's alluring and sexy. In category two, it's a princess bride that she's sweet and pure. For a traditional bride, it might be that their conception of the, the, the bride is that she's a regular girl, just an ordinary girl. Um, and then the category four, I've said the conception is a, that it's a dress that will suit the, the bride, her own person, her unique personality. It might be a mixture of character traits unique to, to that bride. And I'd suggest the second dimension of variation, which is the desired reaction of spectator seeing the bride in the dress. And so for category one, sexy, it might be four. Kind of. <laughs> for category two, it might be, oh, that's the sweet bride. Uh, for category three, the traditional bride, it would be good old Naomi. And for category four, the, where it's, it's actually focused on a more realistic conception of the bride's characteristics, it might be, that's so Naomi. So that's giving a kind of example of what I might see as an outcome space, the categories and outcome space that uh, might emerge. And it would vary a lot. I mean, I, I think... Actually, the might I was probably doing a meta analysis of of kind of the, because each each entourage and bride has its own kind of categories categoristic. Those those are ones that come up quite a lot. Um, so once they got those categories, they could be brought together and presented with those so that they could discuss amongst themselves. Um, and hopefully, what would happen is that in particular they come to see that the category that the bride identified was the one that perhaps they ought to be paying more attention to. Also, there could be the potential for drama, so it wouldn't be a complete washout to say it's to the rest, because obviously it's, it only exists. I, I presume that if someone comes into the shop to say yes to the dress, a potential bride for say yes to the dress, they like the first dress they put on, all their entourage say, wow, that looks great. They say, I feel like a bride. And it, the last five minutes, I assume they never use this. I don't know. I think that they probably they get more adverts in that way. <laughs> if anything, what, no you're, drama, this, though. what you're proposing here could, um, yeah, like TLC could make an absolute fortune yeah. in it. But it could, could also be that while um, I think overall, and in particular, I think um, because there are a percentage of brides that leave without a dress, I think it could overcome some of those because there's some brides that come in and they haven't a clue what they want and they never, they try on loads of dresses and they still haven't a clue and they get more and more depressed. And sometimes there are these totally unresolved conflicts between key people like the mother-in-law and your best friend that never get resolved and that's the reason so hopefully in those situations there'll be more brides going out the door with smiles saying yes i got the dress it may be that there are some programs that become duller but i think also there could be in the course of that it could be very there could be fireworks there could be kind of great fireworks while they suddenly this kind of 
shadow in the the family history emerges about why they see, they see that this bride is sexy because um, her dead mother never admitted that she was sexy oh, or something Lord. like that. There's, there was one bride I saw who, had, who who revealed during the fitting that she was five months pregnant to her entourage and none of her family had I known. saw that. I saw that clip. Oh, my God. It was just like, oh, my Lord. I'm just thinking as well, like the additional drama you could get could be things like, oh, no, but the research document, like the zip file with all the research in it has gone on a hard drive that's broken or something. You know, maybe you just get different type of drama. And um, I've seen... A f- <laughs> I obviously watch too much rubbish TV. There's <laughs> something I've seen a few um, first dates. There's a thing. There's a thing where people are set up with first dates in a restaurant, and I've seen a few episodes of that. And they make a big thing. Well, the first ones I've seen do anyway. The the waiters and waitresses, the kind of the possible relationship between the waiters and waitresses. So you could have the relationships between the researchers and the <laughs> bridal consultants as being kind of like an undercurrent. That could be a thread from. Episode to uh, episode. Them, episode to episode, that's the word. Yes. And, and then I thought after you'd done a lot of these research studies, you could then actually could make money by making a book and a, and a series <laughs> just, just out of your findings from the categories, <laughs> illustrated with clips and making it into a drama. But more seriously, you could then make those into kind of flashcards or something like that so that rather than having to go through the whole interview process, People could kind of sift through and say, yeah, yeah, that's the way I think about the bride and pick out their flashcard and then you could work because that kind of shortcut it. Yeah, make it make the whole dress shopping experience um, outside of the show a more kind yes. of a more streamlined and possibly uh, slightly less uh, dramatic and contentious uh, process for everybody. That sounds And it could be a, a new way to categorize the wedding dresses as well. It could revolutionize the whole wedding dress industry. Yeah, actually. I mean. I guess if you're listening to this from, if you're from Big Dress uh, and you're listening to this, um, then uh, yeah, get in touch. Um, yeah, Sheila's uh, commission check. Uh, I'm sure we'll leave a postal address or something in the show notes. <laughs> um, sorry, Mark, do you want to add anything to that? Any um, thoughts to that? Yeah, it sounds like what, what that would do is, is I mean, you've got two stages. One is what does the dress look like or what does the wedding look like? But before that, and the implicit bit is, what are weddings? What yes. are? And then that's the bit that gets missed out because everybody's working from a shared assumption that everybody thinks the same, that a wedding is the same thing. Yes. And, and that's what that's articulating. And that's, I guess that's what phenomenography does overall is actually say, is actually take one step back and say, you, we've all assumed that everybody thinks this is about the same stuff, but actually it's not. And what I hadn't thought of before is there's a feedback loop in that, in that most of the stuff we do, most of the research people do, I think, is saying, is saying this is how stuff is, or this is how people see stuff, or whatever. It's not then, as a result, giving people the tools to reframe their experience of what's going on, because that's what would happen with this as a process, was be, you'd interview people, you've observed them, so you've actually already done the first loop in this, oh. which is watching every episode of Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> well done. Uh, and then you've categor- come up with these categories, and then you've provided these categories, but then that changes the nature of what it is that you're looking at. It's, this, it's, it's not just a dualism between reality and mind and breaking that down. It's actually breaking down the duality between researcher and researched in that what the researcher does then changes the nature of the phenomenon that's being looked at, yes. or at least changes the perception of the phenomenon. Is that fair? Yeah, yes, and also um, linked to phenomenography is variation theory, which is the application of that directly to teaching. I can 
I can kind of bullshit about variation theory, but I'm that's our favorite dumb. kind of shit. That's yes. the only sort of that's the only sort of thing we do, to be honest. Yeah, so with variation theory, it's it's based on the idea that you learn best by perceiving difference, by perceiving variation. So if you want someone to understand something, you need to bring different aspects, different critical aspects of I mean. that that thing that's being taught into focus, get the student to focus in each and kind of understand each in turn so that they can then draw back and see all the critical aspects. So they'd probably start out with a more partial view of the thing they're learning about. And your job as a teacher is to enable them to distinguish between the different ways in which the different aspects, the critical aspects, the most important aspects of the subject. So there have been a number of projects that have, have done this. By, uh, first of all, done phenomenographic investigations into um, both teachers' conceptions of what the most important aspects of a phenomenon are, how they would experience, say, um, a particular aspect of mathematics or a particular aspect of marketing, and then also um, the learners and find out what their conceptions are so that you actually know how they're understanding the kind of different policy, different ways in which they are understanding the topic at the moment. Then working with the teachers, you develop teaching which is going to enable the students to understand the most important aspects of the subject. And also it helps to kind of the phenomenon and the graphic research helps them to understand what it is they aren't getting and how they, their conceptions differ from those of the teachers. I mean, uh, it, 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 <laughs> there are two, I mean, there is, it's been done quite a lot in subjects like maths where there is actually a wrong way and a right way of understanding fractions or something like that. But Personally, I, I use it in teaching information literacy to help the students think about information literacy more broadly, to understand there isn't just one way of thinking about information literacy and to understand that different people in different contexts, different disciplines, different countries also understand information and information literacy in different ways, encourage the students to use some of these categories and frameworks to, to think about where, they, where they're positioned and to yeah, to broaden their minds a bit. And not to go into this in any depth, but to kind of point out a link to other stuff we might talk about later, I came across the idea of focusing on variance as a teaching tool in something I was reading on storytelling and bringing in storytelling and storytelling narratives into uh, how you might help students learn stuff. And that was one of the techniques. And of course, variance and I suppose phenomenography is people telling the story about what they're experiencing and then looking for correlations in those stories. So it does uh, tie in with storytelling, which well, that's a thing for another episode, but maybe there's a link there. And I think actually we can maybe draw a bit of this thread into part three where we're talking about how you can apply it to your own practice because it sounds like phenomenography as even just as a student activity sounds like a fantastic way uh, of um, exploring, a, exploring a subject. Um, before we move on to part three... We should probably just do a, like a quick summary of our answer to our question. Can I have a go? I want to see if oh, I yeah. I want to see if I've understood this. Unless Mark, you want to have a bash? No, uh, no, I'm 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 bullshitted out. I mean, <laughs> okay, well, I I think I still have like a little bit of bullshit in the tank. So let's see. Well. Let's see. So the question: Could phenomenography phenomenon? Yeah, I got that right first time. I'm so yeah. used to, I'm so used to correcting myself. Could phenomenography <laughs> increase the happiness quotient in say address? So the phenomenography the approach the methods the phenom what would you call it the i call it a research approach because it's yeah. it, it's 
involves different methods. Yeah. So you could use the um, phenomenography, phenomenographic method, uh, research method to um, uh, survey the bride and the bridal party around, well, it's a question, the bride and the bridal party around what they feel a wedding dress is um, and kind of really digging into the whole sort of uh, the different understandings and the perceptions and experiences that they've got, what they feel um, the wedding dress is, uh, I guess, in general or in specific relation to this wedding and this bride? You'd normally be just asking about the phenomenon of a wedding dress because I'm, it's, a, it's an interesting question, but I'm... Yes, you'd have probably had to. I've been working on the assumption that people's general ideas about what a wedding dress is about. It's quite. I mean, I haven't read any of the, I doubtless huge research about the symbolic significance of wedding dresses, but I mean, they are they are symbolic. Um, so I think people's general conception of what a wedding dress is, and that seems to be one of the problems, would come into it. So I tend to uh, ask the more okay. general question. I, I wonder to counter that though, if there's if people would feel differently about it in an abstract sense as they would uh, to a you know a, oh wedding dress is just it's just a dress but for for nicole oh my god like you know this isn't this isn't just a dress for nicole this is her life this is her so i wonder <laughs> if that um, that personal connection would change but anyway sorry yes so it's as uh, you could use to question people around what a wedding dress is to them um you can then use that to identify what the differences are in those perceptions oh. and start categorizing them and then you can present those categories, those top level headings back to the people that you've served and go, this is the range, oops, clonk, this is the range <laughs> of, um, this is the variation of uh, experience of the phenomena of wedding dress. Use this information to kind of, you know, I guess use this information to examine what you think about it, to reflect on it, and then perhaps to, I mean, as much as anything, I suppose, it must be, it's like a shortcut to consensus because you've got everybody's, mm. literally got everybody's yeah. cards on the table with what they they feel about it. Uh, and with this uh, information presented to them, it'll be easier for them to come to a more happy consensus, obviously weighted in favour of the bride and walk out happy with a dress. Is that a fair, slightly, I, I, I tried to summarise and I feel like I actually said, more blather than I intended. That was supposed to be like a sentence originally. Did that make sense? Was that correct? Yes, yes, I think it makes sense. And also because they're categories rather than trying to summarise what each person thought thinks, if someone is a bit reluctant to, to actually own their conceptions, because sometimes in the entourage you've got people who, who seem to be just kind of acquiescing all the way through and then at the end they explode and say how it's, something's hideous and they've got completely different ideas. Um, it, it's something you could use without necessarily putting it in your face straight away. It wouldn't be necessarily confrontational as um, facing individuals with their individual conceptions. Oh, sort of a, a non-confrontational taxonomy of discussing wedding dresses. Mm, yes. Mm, I mean, even I guess you could, it, even if you had non no consensus, uh, and I could see that actually you might not mm. still not have consensus. At least you'd have foregrounded the areas in which the disagreements taking place. Which is kind of a bit better, I guess. Yeah, you're halfway it's there. Like, aren't you? Yeah, uh. it's like I haven't got an answer, but I've got a different name for the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mark, can I just say, by the way, with that microphone arrangement, you look a lot like Bane from the second Batman movie. <laughs> you made it up to the darkness, but I was born in the darkness. <laughs> What with the with the flouncy flowery cushions next to it? Uh, well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of wiggle. Okay, so I think we've answered the question. Let's um, let's move on to how we can actually uh, apply this, or how you can apply this, dear sweet loving listener, uh, in part three of the show.
where we give you some tips for your own practice. Part three, practical tips. Okay, so part three, um, based on everything we talked about, what tips can we give to educators? Mark, do you want to go first? Uh, no. Okay, Sheila. <laughs> okay, so I think doing phenomenographic research is a really good way to understand the ways that learners are thinking about your subject and also to get the learners to understand how other people are thinking about a particular phenomenon. A quick tip, if you haven't got time to actually do a whole phenomenographic research study, is basically to do a search for phenomenography and the subject you're interested in teaching because there's been a lot of phenomenographic research across a wide range of disciplinary areas. And it may be that you find a study that shows that people think of uh, or experience something in your subject area in different ways, and you can use that as a discussion um, prompt for the students. They might be kind of each asked to understand a different perspective or or uh, explain them to each other or kind of a, it would depend on what the subject is. They might be able to identify themselves with a particular way. I mean, I, I use that, for example, with the existing um, research about conceptions of teaching and conceptions of and approaches to learning. So I get the students to kind of self-identify, but as well as more specialist things. But it, it's there are a lot of small-scale research studies out there, so you don't necessarily have to do it yourself. You can still use it with your, your students to get them to think a bit more broadly and openly about whatever it is you're teaching. That's a pretty comprehensive top tip. Mark, how about you? Yep, I got one now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't feel competent in talking about phenomenography itself, but I think one of the things that came out of what Sheila was talking about is this idea that to not jump to the assumption that everyone perceives a phenomenon in the same way that I think, you know, the, the, the sort of the confusions that's arisen when people are choosing a dress because there's a difference in perspective on what a, a wedding is. You might go in there thinking, oh, it's so the bride can have her day in the spotlight. And yet everyone else is going, well, it's part of a tradition or whatever. That is, I think that's worth remembering is that you're going into something with an assumptions about what this means, and that's not shared by everybody else. And creating a space in which you can foreground those assumptions and ask the right questions, which is where the actual graphy bit comes in, I guess, and the research methods. But even just as a simple practice to say, before you launch into any kind of description of something or uh, is to is to take that pause to identify whether or not everyone else is sharing those same same assumptions about the thing that you're going to be talking about. That's kind of it in a very vague way, really. No, I, I like that. And actually, it ties in nicely with what I was thinking, because I think, it's as, you, as you're saying, it's a way to look at the variance from your own assumptions. Um, I think, for me, I, I, it would be, if you're doing student, if you're researching your students, then this is a, or if you're doing a, I want to say piece of student research because it makes sound like the students are doing. If you're doing a piece of research on students, no, that sounds like uh -huh. a bit Dr. Frankenstein-y. Um, if you're if you're doing a study on students, oh, bloody hell! Sorry, I, if you're studying students, if you're studying students, yes. if you're studying students, <laughs> like yeah. the animals they are. No, if you're studying students, then this is a good approach you could use, particularly if it's something that you're looking to do in regards to student-centered design, um, because it's very easy sometimes to project your own assumptions onto that and i think we've talked about that at length with uh, with elliot spaith um in uh, in previous recording but just to capture the variance of uh, of experience uh, and 
feeling on on a particular area uh, this would be a really lovely and and useful way to approach that and also um when somebody asks how you conducted that study you can then say why i used a phenomenographic approach a phenomenographic approach and then <laughs> and then everybody will be like wow that's so impressive that i can't even pronounce it and um, that will increase I'm your happiness quotient sorry <laughs> that was probably it meant to be a kind of smooth ending I was just thinking, <laughs> <laughs> smooth. Smooth. <laughs> I'll just shoot that out of the water <laughs> but I thought I'd just um, say this, it, it's why it's um, a popular approach in medical education mm. because it's so important that the nurses and the doctors actually understand the patient's perspectives and that nurses and doctors and different kinds of health professionals working together understand that they're different perspectives which Phenomenographic research is going to be quite difficult. So it is one of the areas, medical education, where it's it's used quite a lot. We've only gone and flipping like we, we, we deduced the application of medical education, Mark, by just by just understanding it through through mm-hmm. answering that question. That's, um, but so you can cut out that whole last No, bit. I'm keeping but, it in. And, and go with your smooth spitting. No, no, we're keeping this. We're, we're going to have, if this is going to be, uh, this is going to be, oh, I'm trying to think of something that's smooth and then quite rough. You know the edge of a bit of toast where you've got a lovely bit of butter? But then oh. you hit the horrible, like, craggly land of the bit that wasn't quite worth buttering. This is going to be that bit, just cutting up the roof of our listeners' mouths. So, yeah, I just... So what I'm butter goes to the itch. Was, was, oh, no. I, oh, 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 getting less smooth by the second. <laughs> Quick, Mark, save or me. Or either buttered Mark, over the why edge. Don't, well, yeah, why don't you press your, your butter fingers. to the edge of your toast? That's, that's... Well, what are you going to hold? Otherwise, you've got to, like, balance it on the tops of your fingers. It's like chopsticks or something. But Mark, Mark, you're famously smooth. Save me. Um, who's right? <laughs> and I have nothing to say here. <laughs> oh, he's deployed the Dudley accent. Now we know the smoothness <laughs> is up to max. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, um, nice. Cool. Um, I think we've comprehensively answered the question and got some top uh, tips for you. What more do you want, listeners? You greedy, greedy listeners. You greedy ear holes. It's uh, Chula. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, look forward to having you join us on our, our next episode. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I, I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, so thank you very much for listening you can subscribe to us on all of your favorite apps feeds itunes and at our website pedagodzilla.com you can also follow us and get in touch via twitter i'm at pedagodzilla i'm at mark childs i'm at sheila yoshikawa we hope you enjoyed the episode if you did um then why not see if you can find lots of other people who um, just understand the concept of a podcast to see what a podcast is to them um and then um while they're not looking, tattoo our URL on their backs. And, uh, and that way, do it backwards. That way, when they catch it in the mirror, they'll be able to see it on the Anyway, we love you lots, and we'll see you next time on Godzilla. Goodbye now. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. I know. I, Let's get more and more tortured I know, as we go I love, on. I love how shaggy the dog gets. <laughs> <laughs>